everyone. Welcome to our Russian lecture entitled Family Law in Lockdown. Um, this will be a departure for me in a number of ways. Firstly, because I'm delivering it to you as Gresham's Emeritus Professor of Law, uh, with my superb colleague Leslie Thomas QC now having taken over my role as Professor of Law. But secondly, because under COVID, I'm introducing this lecture to you through the world of Zoom, and that is Barnard's Hall, and to try to make you feel at home. But the third and most significant development is this is the first one where it's going to be a panel discussion as opposed to me talking. And I'm therefore delighted to welcome to the Gresham platform the following people. Can I introduce my friend and colleague, please, to you, Cyrus uh, Larry Zayda. I have to say that so carefully, because so many times in court it has permutations beyond those even I can put together. <laughs> Uh, Cyrus will introduce himself to you in, in a moment, but let me first then turn to Lucy Reed, um, a colleague barrister and a member of Transparency Project. And then we have Louise Tickle, a journalist who has been instrumental in so many significant decision makings in the court where she tries to break through the boundaries between the public, the press and the judiciary and those of us that work in the environment. So having introduced them to you by name, I'm going to hand over to them each in turn to give you a little biography which will explain to you why I was truly delighted that they were going to join me tonight. Cyrus, can I start with you first? Uh, certainly. Um, I'm Cyrus Lorizade, and um, I am the chair of the Family Law Bar Association, and we have uh, approximately 2,000 members. Uh, I took silk in 2016, and I specialize in child protection cases, so children law, but in particular, uh, child protection. And so um, I was particularly interested in uh, the developments of uh, COVID from um, when it really kicked off for us, which was on the 17th of March onwards. And I'll be delighted to speak to you about that. Excellent. Thank you, Cyrus. Lucy. Hi, I'm Lucy. I am, like Cyrus, a family barrister. My specialism is in children work, primarily child protection, like Cyrus, um, but also disputes between parents about their children. I am the chair of the Transparency Project, which is an educational charity that tries to make family courts and family law a bit clearer to the public. And I'm the author of a book for litigants in person, people without lawyers, um, to help them navigate through the family court system when they're dealing with um, disputes about their children or their property on separation. Thank you very much, Lucy. So Louise, tell us about yourself. I'm Louise Tickle. I am a freelance journalist based near Bristol. And for about, well, it's over five years now, I have been attempting, um, and I use that word advisedly, attempting to report on the family courts um, and I campaign uh, for greater openness and transparency in the family justice system, because what many of the audience will appreciate, but which most of the public don't understand, is that there is no right to report the detail of what goes on in family court proceedings when very great powers are exercised, which can change the lives of children and their families forever. So over this period of lockdown, um, I have been attending some remote, remotely held family court hearings, as well as being involved in two uh, where I was an applicant. Thank you, Luz. Right now, to anyone who has read the trailer blurb um, and therefore joined this lecture, you will be expecting us to talk about 
Um, Article 6 rights, Article 8 rights, um, access of families to justice, and those are those are words which don't actually mean anything until we put them in context. So let me say exactly what we want to talk about tonight. We want to talk about whether or not under uh, COVID, families and their lawyers are being able to work together properly with judges to make decisions that are in the best interest of the children. And that's what we call Article 6 rights because it's right to fair trial and right to justice. And Article 8 rights is basically the ability and the right to be a parent if it's safe for you to do so. And the only circumstances in which it's deemed for you to be unsafe as carers is if the court has effectively stepped in to say that there's a reason for the children to be removed from you, either permanently after a full final hearing or on an interim basis when there are concerns to be litigated. And it's how we balance that desire to be a parent, the need for a child to be protected from neglectful or abusive parenting. And when there is no agreement on whether the home environment is safe or not, who makes the decisions as to whether a child can or can't remain in the family home? And in extreme cases um, where the harm is such that the child can't be safely cared for either by the parent or within the family, then that leads to adoption, which is a permanent severance of the relationship uh, between the child and the birth parents. And those are the type of decisions which we are now having to conduct under COVID uh, procedures. So what we're going to do uh, is to talk about the impact of COVID in three stages. Life before COVID interrupted the family justice system. Life after the 18th of March 2020, when uh, it became a different legal landscape in which we operated. And then lastly, what, what greets us over the coming months and possibly the next year. So think of this as a conversation in three parts. Part one, life before COVID. As a brief summary, um, from my role as a silk in child protection cases, it was the norm that the client, in the main I act for parents, so I mean the parents, the lawyers for the parents, possibly an article clerk from the solicitor's firm, would be in attendance along with at least a social worker, their lawyer, and we would also have the guardian, if not there in person, acting on behalf of the child, then through their lawyer as well. So a minimum, normally, of three lawyers, the lay clients, social worker, parent, um, and then the guardian, and we'd have the judge. And the expectation was that we would all be in court together because it was understood that coming to court was an important stage in understanding the gravity of the matter, how important the allegations were, but also it was the direct interface between the client, the lawyer that was representing them, and the judge. And it was a way of having a concourse, a discussion between the other teams so that you could get a lot of work done outside court that didn't mean that the judge had to be troubled with minute details. That was the way in which we operated pre-COVID. It is no longer the way we work because it's no longer safe for us to be in the same building, closer than two metres together. And for various other reasons, the system went into a totally different way of operating come the 17th, 18th of March. So does anyone want to add anything just to that very brief summary of the family court system prior to COVID? And I'm looking over to you, Lucy, anything to add to that? I suppose I should give a slightly different perspective for um, 
barristers who are not operating at your level, Joe, and that of Cyrus. I think for the majority of family court cases, it's in, it has been um, relatively uncommon for a barrister to be at court with also a solicitor. Sometimes it happens if a client has particular needs or the particular hearing means that it's a good idea for somebody to be taking a note behind the barrister or if um, it's felt that there's a need for the barrister to, to be supported by having someone on hand to keep an eye on the client and make sure they're okay or to deal with any practical stuff that comes up. So the picture before COVID was slightly different for probably most barristers on that front. And so you would have more clients coming to court on their own, meeting with their barrister, but whilst the barrister was occupied at court, being sat in the courtroom on their on their own. Um, so that I think would be different from my perspective to what you've described, Joe. Okay. Uh, Louise, a brief snapshot of the court vista that you encountered pre-March 2020. So if I was to go along to, say, the Bristol Main Family Court Centre, um, as an accredited journalist, I would be entitled to simply walk into any, almost any, private family court hearing. Um, and I, I would be able to uh, listen to objections if there were any from the parties, make my case in person to the judge um, and either be allowed to stay or be asked to leave. Um, I would be able to see the lists, although they're they're not very informative. You can't really tell what a case is about from looking at the lists in any family court because they're anonymised. Um, but I would have had that that simple right of access to be able to walk in because that is the entitlement if you're accredited media. And that changed. Right. And Cyrus, what have I missed out from our... So, so, so Joe, I, I would say certainly uh, pre-COVID, um, people were still using a great deal of paper. So mm. but bundles were being used all the time, um, uh, sometimes thousands and thousands, as you and I both know very well, Joe, in suitcases uh, travelling around the country with them. I know that you and I had begun to shed those uh, and we were using more... Um, remote sort of paperless um, uh, bundles, but but it was still very much what happened uh, every day um, in uh, all parts of the country, just lots and lots of files and paper. Uh, the other thing uh, is that uh, Videolink, we had these um, rather um, uh, clunky and uh, unuser-friendly setups and we needed uh, links between one TV and another and uh, the uh, visibility, the connectivity wasn't very good and we, we would often uh, question an expert uh, on this but it was it was blurred, it would um, cut out and it wasn't particularly user-friendly. Uh, we did question vulnerable people uh, on video links so that was part of pre-COVID anyway. But again, it was always done on the rather clunky systems that we use. So that, that was very much the, the vistas you say pre-COVID. I think the one thing that none of us have mentioned, because we take it for so much for granted, is also just how busy being at court was, how yeah. many cases there were waiting to be heard, how many barristers and solicitors and clients there were outside, because everything was listed if it was a directions day for arrive 9.30 for 10, 10.30. And so you would have um, on a directions day, 
on an applications day as much as you know possibly 10 cases outside and the the sheer volume of people the degree of contact between different people and barristers as you were talking about not just the case today but what might happen next week um, led to a sense that the that the system was designed that we wasted the least court time, even if we wasted parents' time or lawyers' time outside. So I think that's probably the last thing tied, isn't it? That being in court was a was a hustle bustle exercise where you were scrabbling for conference rooms and when you didn't actually know when you'd actually actually get to see the judge. And quite often you'd ask for your case to be put back because you were doing more work with the other barristers and the other solicitors outside court narrowing the issue so being in court was not the be all and end all it was the point at last resort if you hadn't been able to agree things um, yeah. and the length of time you take of the judge's time depending on was how many issues you, you'd managed to agree outside I think that probably would be the same Lucy wouldn't it at, at every um, level of hearing yeah there would be quite a lot of block listing um yeah. so as you say the idea was you'd bring everybody in at 10 o'clock generally speaking, and then the, the, the system operated on the basis that the lawyers would be doing a lot of their work at court on arrival before they were ready to see the judge, and it operated on the basis that the list was therefore flexible, so you wouldn't necessarily go in at 10, and the judge could order the cases depending on who was ready, which meant that each hearing theoretically was a bit shorter. Um, we may have learned something about whether or not what was really happening was consistent with those um, intended priorities, but that's that was the thrust of it before COVID. Certainly, was that you do a lot of the grunt work before you went into court and have most of it hopefully resolved. But by the time you saw the judge, yeah, good. I'm glad that hasn't changed. Right, and then of course there we are in March. Um, it's spring weather. We're hearing rumours of what's going on abroad, and it's starting to come back into the United Kingdom as not just a problem for China and uh, neighbour countries, but something that can impact upon our shores. Cyrus, that's probably the right point for me to hand over to you, which is what were the first signs that came across your desk as FLBA chair that made you realise that we were in a situation of very profound um, at risk and, and change? Well, I think, Joe, um, people started dying in March and the situation was high risk, and um, the government had started to uh, advise from a health and safety point of view um, that people shouldn't actually um, uh, travel and uh, also go to work. And one of the concerns that we had as lawyers with our clients going to court was that um, there was the virus and it was a, it was a invisible killer and um, we had a court system that, in my view, what, that was not fit for purpose in terms of health and safety. Um, there was no soap uh, in the bathrooms. Uh, there was um, no uh, real uh, cleaning and hygiene uh, of the, um, the, um, the bathrooms and the toilets. Um, yes, they would be cleaned perhaps once a day, uh, but it wouldn't be cleaned throughout the day. And uh, the security guards were not following um, standard um, basic protocol um, that was already being suggested by um, Public Health England and Wales. 
Um, HMCTS uh, did get their act together, in my view, because I deal with them on a weekly basis. Uh, but it took them time to uh, start putting into place uh, safety. So on the 17th of March, Joe, having consulted with um, my 32 members from all the regions uh, of England and Wales, um, we decided that we would make a recommendation uh, that uh, we uh, could not, we could not advise our uh, members to go to court as we felt it wasn't safe to do so. Ultimately, we couldn't bind them, so I couldn't tell them not to go, but we made a recommendation that it wasn't safe to go to court. And uh, it took a little bit of time for some of the other specialist bar associations and indeed um, the Bar Council uh, to uh, follow, uh, but I mean by a day or two. Uh, but but we, we made the judgment call. I had a little bit of a sleepless night, to be honest with you, because it was a huge judgment call. It was the right one. And uh, it was a unanimous decision of our committee that we would we would cease going to court. And people did follow and they didn't go to court. And we then had to find ways of ensuring that the system continued to function. And that was through... Um, what we called remote access uh, or remote platforms. Uh, and it, it included phone hearings in the early stages. And suddenly we all discovered Zoom and LifeSize and Skype for Business and Microsoft Teams. And um, we were able to have audiovisual uh, hearings, uh, although there were still few and far between, uh, in, in March. And so the system uh, started to, um, to run again. Uh, and unfortunately, it was hurtling uh, at a breakneck speed uh, without any real consideration for uh, our clients, uh, in some cases, and the vulnerable. And um, I very much admire the work that Lucy and Louise have done. Uh, they asked the questions that others did not feel able to do. Uh, they pushed the boundaries uh, that others felt unable to push. And uh, as a result of their work and the work of the ALC, um, uh, the Association of Lawyers for Children, uh, the Law Society, the FLBA, and Resolution, and uh, not forgetting, uh, last uh, but certainly not least, um, the Transparency Project, which Lucy heads, uh, the president of the family division, Sir Andrew McFarlane, who runs the family justice system, who's the in charge of the family justice system, um, took stock, took notice, and said it's all going too fast. And uh, it's not fit for uh, every case. And in fact, people are disadvantaged and they're suffering. And um, you, you'll hear much more about that from um, Louise and Lucy in due course. But so we, we then... Uh, Breaks. We, we started to slow down and reflect on uh, what the best platform would be. And a brilliant setup called the uh, Family Justice Observatory, uh, run by Nuffield, uh, did a survey, which we all contributed to, including lay parties, um, uh, people who participate in the hearings, parents, for example. And um, they came up with a series of recommendations, and we've gradually refined uh, the system 
so that we don't necessarily uh, have uh, video hearings or um, remote hearings for every case. Some are just not suitable for it. And we're now gradually, Joe, as you know, moving towards what are called part-attended hearings, which are uh, people attending partly at court and others uh, zooming in, if you like, or um, dialing in uh, to participate audiovisually by asking questions and by um, presenting the case um, from elsewhere. And, uh, and we're now gradually moving towards in-person hearings uh, where uh, in the old way, we would have everyone at court, but they have to be in particularly at large uh, setups with the right health and safety. And uh, as we'll come on to, there are real issues about the health and safety aspects of the reopened courts, which are being addressed, and uh, we'll come on to discussing that. So that gives you a, a roller coaster ride through March, April and May, I hope. That's really helpful. Right, so I'm just going to break that down. So what Cyrus has taught is told us about the information coming in that the court environment was not safe for anyone participating in it. And it was a whole fire. Don't put yourself or your client at risk. That was stage one. Then there was the move to remote hearings because justice means access to justice and we can't afford to hold up decisions when there's good reason to go ahead and if we think we can deliver good quality justice and that was the Zoom hearing. That's probably the time I can come over to you, Louise, because you've written powerfully um, about the inside information that you were able to tap into from your colleague in the court protection, where she was reporting on the impact of a Zoom hearing conducted on one of the involved family members. Can I, can I take that as your cue to tell us about some of the shortcomings that you became aware of that were happening through uh, the desire to keep the whole system rolling. What can you tell us about that? So, I mean, as a journalist, you're always an outsider. Um, And so I think perhaps sometimes things surprise us and alarm us uh, from from what is essentially a lay perspective that might not necessarily so instantly be so noticeable to people who are within the system. Um, and you're right, Celia Kitzinger, Professor Kitzinger, had been doing some really fascinating observations of court of protection cases, one in which she had a client um, who anonymously is called Sarah. Uh, and she had already, I think, observed one court of protection case in which one of Sarah's relatives, um, or they, they were the subject of the case, and, and she felt, and she wrote very powerfully for the Transparency Project, which Lucy commissioned, um, a blog which showed some really, really worrying shortcomings in, I think, well, let's just put it straight, you know, the demeanour of the barristers and the judge, um, the the places in which that, that hearing was held, um, you know, dogs barking um, at the judge's house and him having to, I think, a couple of times go and, and shut them up and close them down. Um, highly paid professionals in very well-appointed houses um, holding hearings um, in their living rooms, which didn't feel appropriate at all. Um, And Sarah, uh, the woman who Celia was representing, um, clearly felt that it had been done in a very disrespectful way. Now, that was a blog that I think made waves. And um, I think it was a brave blog uh, for Celia to write. I have not observed 
anything like that. I think I suppose what I want to talk about is uh, the balance between sort of safety for for children and fairness of process, but also the humanity of the process. And the thing that I keep thinking about now is a hearing I observed where a very young woman, it looked like to me, uh, whose child had been taken to hospital um, in an emergency under police protection powers, uh, was three days later, so at the end of the 72 hours under which those, uh, which those protection powers come to an end, had to zoom in, effectively, I think it was zoom, it might have been a different platform, to an interim um, hearing for an application for her child to continue to be removed because this continued to be an emergency. Um, she was on her own in what looked like her bedroom. Uh, she looked like she had been crying for three days straight and no one was with her. And everyone in that hearing was extremely kind. Everyone was solicitous and everyone was respectful. Not a harsh word was said to her and the judge in particular was extremely solicitous and made sure that she had every opportunity to speak. But there is no getting away from the fact that that woman on that day, which was in fact her child's birthday, um, had to hear that she wouldn't not, it wasn't just that she wouldn't be able to see her child, um, you know, for a little while, but because of COVID restrictions, she wouldn't be able to in person see her child for a very for an indeterminate amount of time. No one could tell her when she would physically be allowed to have contact with that child again. Um, and at the end of the hearing, we all pressed end meeting, and that was that. So I'm sure that her solicitor then rang her up and had a long conversation with her. I have no question that that happened, but the humanity of that process and the 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 the, the, the removal of human contact in such an extreme decision, which had to be taken clearly, um, seemed really uh, incredibly sad and potentially highly traumatic um, for a woman who would have been going through something very traumatic anyway, not to have the support of your solicitor and your barrister in person, both before and during and after that hearing seems to me something that we should try to avoid at every, you know at you know we, we, we need to think very carefully and creatively about how that doesn't continue to happen and I appreciate that hybrid hearings are potentially one way in which somebody like that woman could come to court and observing social distancing rules her lawyers potentially could be with her um, but I've also noticed things that are uh you know, good about remote hearings. And um, from my point of view, at least, I've been able to attend hearings that there's not a hope that I would have been able to physically go to um, around the country because I could just dial in. It has made mm -hmm. things from that perspective much easier for me to challenge, for instance, um, a High Court judge's decision to anonymise Haringey Council. Um, Haringey definitely didn't want to be named in a particular case where he had severely criticised them. Um, and me and another journalist, Brian Farmer from the Press Association, were able to very swiftly get another hearing convened. And we all attended from different places. And there was absolutely no need for any of us to all troop along to the Royal Courts of Justice for that hearing. It could be done really efficiently um, from our homes. And, you know, well, I would say that perhaps, wouldn't I, because I got the result I wanted. But in fact, the process would have been fair, entirely fair, had the result gone the other way. There was no detriment. 
Um, but then, you know, Brian and I are not vulnerable lay parties at risk of losing our child. And I think particularly at a time when so many of the norms which have been, you know, thought very hard about for how to make hearings fair, when very powerful decisions are going to be made that change people's lives and remove their children um, are being toppled <laughs> sort of week, week upon week. Uh, I think there is a real danger um, that the perspective of lay parties, even though I agree they were, some were um, consulted for the Nuffield Family Justice Observatory, two reports, in fact, one on remote hearings and one on contact, it is always harder to get the perspective of vulnerable people who are suffering and who may not want to think too hard or respond to surveys about their experience of the family justice system. Um, and I think that their perspective is something that journalists really have to always keep in mind and have to be you know, very determined that they will show, even if it doesn't necessarily show the system in a particularly kind light. Thank you, Louise. Now that's twice that your name or that of the TP, the Transparency Project, has been mentioned, both by Cyrus and Louise. So what was what would you like to say, Lucy, about your perspective, um, and whether it was the same or different that what the Transparency Project had, like uh, in the immediate aftermath? I suppose the first thing to say is that quite early on in the process, before the Nuffield started their um their look at what was happening on behalf of the president. The Transparency Project did start a survey of specifically of parents who were involved in this type of hearing. It was very early days. The numbers weren't massive, but I think it's fair to say that there were really quite mixed responses. Um, we had by that point already published Celia's post, which was raising some concerns about how much the judges and legal professionals were really appreciating what the experience was like for the litigants. But actually, when the litigants responded to the survey, some of them were reasonably positive about their experience. It's important to say, I think, that that was in the early days where most hearings that were happening on the ground were, first of all, they were happening by telephone. So the technical difficulties were much more limited because anybody can be dialed out to by a judge. It's not quite so tricky to manage. And they were short directions hearings. So we're not talking about the same type of hearing broadly yeah. that Louise is talking about. So there were some litigants who were saying, actually, it was much better. I didn't have to be in the same court building as my domestically abusive ex, for example. Equally, there were some who were saying the hearing happened without me. I couldn't join. It was a disaster. It wasn't fair. So that was very mixed. And I think the other thing to draw out is that at the same time as all of that was happening in the early days, we were trying to work out how well is it working for litigants? Are we getting the full picture? You know, are we really appreciating the re lived reality for people? There were differences between different uh, different tiers of courts. So the, the High Court was rushing ahead and very enthusiastic about Zoom hearings and saying it was all fantastic, probably until Celia pointed out it didn't look that way from the other end of the lens. Whilst um, at the lower level, as I say, most hearings were happening by telephone. And it's certainly in my practice, judges were saying um, with cases that were already in the system, I'm adjourning this final hearing. I'm not doing it. I'm not willing to do it. I can't do it fairly. I'm going to put it off for three weeks till we see what happens. Maybe we'll be able to do it in a few weeks time. And that was what was happening at the beginning. As things have gone on more and more, we've come back to see what happened after three weeks 
And then after another three weeks, it's become apparent that it's hopeless trying to wait for this to resolve itself and a different solution has to be found. So it's been a it's really been an evolving process. And so now judges who at the beginning of lockdown were saying, well, I'm not taking any um, evidence by video. It'll have to be a face to face hearing. We'll just have to wait, are saying different things because our our options are very obviously different. We thought it might go away. It's not going away. Um, And. The the other thing to say in terms of what Louise is describing, those emergency decisions where children are removed from the care of their parents, sometimes babies, sometimes older children, they are happening all the time. I have dealt with them by video link on a number of occasions. Um, They have to happen. There isn't an alternative at the moment. Children can't wait. They are really difficult to deal with for all sorts of reasons, not least because even though the lawyers are now familiar with getting onto the link, the parents aren't, they're not in a good state to be working out how to connect to an unfamiliar platform with all of the emotions that are going on. And actually, unfortunately, hybrid hearings are not going to be a solution for urgent hearings. I know from trying to get listed final hearings in cases that really, really need to be heard because they've been put off, that the court has available a very limited number of courts and a very limited number of days. And, you know, effectively, all of the different jurisdictions, family crime, tribunals, civil, are are having to fight over the courtrooms. So um, if one needs a particular witness to come in on a particular day to give evidence in court, you might be able to book it. But what we're not going to be able to do is say, well, there's an urgent hearing, let's do it at court, because that's easier for the parent. So... That problem, and it's a, it's a really big human problem about those mothers, those fathers, those grandparents sitting on their own at the point when those really awful decisions are made, certainly the interim ones, we don't have a fix for that. We are able to plan a bit better for final hearings, um, but those emergency hearings, I think they bother us all. I don't know what's, how to make them better. I'd like to add in something there that there was one emergency hearing that I almost attended and then the mother objected and so I I switched off my video and off I went but I could see that the young man who was the father he was incredibly young I don't think he was any older than 18 Um, and I think that there is another issue (laughs) which is that you know many many of your cases will be dealing with very young people children so to me as an outsider the idea that a child could be required to take part and he was clearly on his own in what looked like his bedroom um in a hearing where their own children could be removed has just mind-blowing human rights implications to me um people who have little access uh to devices who might not have data who might not have the money to put any more data on their phones, who might not have the education to dial in to a hearing or to understand what's going on without somebody at their side all the time. This is something that I think, you know, people in the system are, I'm sure you're all heartbroken that it happens, but from outside the system, the fact that it does at all and and then the fact that it happens to highly vulnerable children who are standing to lose their own children just feels it, it's heartbreaking, and and I I think 
you know, enormous efforts have to be made to ensure that the process doesn't traumatise them any more than it needs. Well, I think what that's bringing to the fore is is the sort of hidden component about being a child protection lawyer, whether you're a solicitor or a barrister, which is the core component of our job, which is rarely visible, but which makes the job worthwhile and can achieve change is the client care. Um, I rarely act for a client that's that's not vulnerable. My Many of my clients um, will have learning difficulties of anything from 56 through to 66. I will know how difficult they've found it to understand and to navigate their way from home to court, for example, and to understand what happens within a court building and who does what. Many of my clients will have mental health issues, anxiety issues. Uh, many of them will have um, language as a barrier between me and them because I speak English and don't speak their language. And so all of us within this system are used to operating in a way where we do support and shore up our clients through the use of intermediaries who understand that things need to be broken down professionally so the message can be understood translating lawyers language and even everyday language into really simple terms for our learning disabled clients um interpreters and quite often more than one or two because of the breadth of language we have within the united kingdom but even if they don't have vulnerabilities through um, cognitive issues or through stress issues, none of them are coming into the court system willingly. They are all at risk of losing their families. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in the family court system. And our role as lawyers is to help them understand the case against them, to guide them through it and to be there before and after the hearing to make sure that they're not let cut adrift. And I think what the two of you are saying, and you, Louise, in particular, is is saying that when that safety net support is removed, then we are putting parents in a very, very brutal situation, which is unavoidable when a child who's the ultimate vulnerable client, the ultimate vulnerable party needs to be protected. But that means there's a really difficult balance to be drawn between the necessity to have a hearing, when to have a hearing and how to have a hearing, because there are competing rights and interests there. There's you know, the, the right of the parent to have a hearing where they feel fully included so that their voice is heard because they are the parent of the child. There's the right of the child, isn't there, Cyrus, to make sure that delay, which otherwise delays the progression of the um, case, is fully factored into account. And they have a separate voice through their guardian. And then there's the local authority who are bringing the case because they've got concerns about the child. And in the state system, no one wins by being in state limbo. Let me make that absolutely clear. There is, there is a reason why court hearings should not be delayed. And that's because we can't leave children in a state of limbo not knowing whether they're going back to their parental home or a family home or if they're going to be in state care temporarily or full-term or indeed in adoption. So part of the way in which we operate is to make sure our client understands all of those ramifications and understands how important it is to get to, to get to grips with the case against them, to engage where they haven't been the best parent they could be, to see if they've got the potential to be done better, and to litigate through submissions and oral evidence those matters which we can't resolve. So if we're dealing with a case in which a baby has died, for example, with accusations that the baby has come to die through shaking, or through other type of inflicted injury, then no one's going to put their hands up to that. That needs to be heard by a judge 
with the expert evidence, with the professional evidence and the parental evidence in order to come to a decision. And that's really, Lucy, I think where, if we bring it back to you, it was, it was looking at the different type of hearings that were okay under Zoom or remote versus those type of decisions where it wasn't in any part of our mindset, was it, that we could possibly have a completely remote hearing dealing with matters of such subtlety exactly. where um, everything was done in such a detached way. Yeah, I mean, we, we civil cases have quite often, um, civil courts have quite often dealt with cases where uh, by straightforward case management issues have been dealt with by telephone hearings. That's happened for years, except where there was a litigant in person involved. The family courts, by and large have resisted doing that and I think if you'd asked family lawyers up to the beginning of March this year when telephone hearings or video hearings might be appropriate most of them would say hardly ever at all unless it's truly an issue that doesn't require clients it's just a straightforward case management issue. I think we've all now probably learnt that there are more occasions when we can legitimately use telephone and more more likely video links to run hearings in a way that is fair and doable and we've all probably now done some where we've come out the other end and said yeah that wasn't ideal but it's okay I don't feel like it's been unfair so I think there is more potential to do quite a lot of what we previously would have thought had to be done face to face remotely it requires a completely different way of working and a lot more forward planning there's a lot of unseen work and a lot more logistical issues to manage your diary so that rather than showing up at court an hour before the hearing and going between lawyers discussions reassuring clients taking instructions to and fro you have to plan a sequence of meeting your client probably the day before holding then an advocates meeting after that and then meeting just before the hearing to discuss any issues, and then being absolutely ready at the point when the hearing starts for the judge. So diary management's quite complicated to organise all of that in sequence. So it's a different way of working, but a lot of it can be done. But I think the more trial work I do, the more I realise that there are some techniques we might use that don't translate across a video link, um, and that we may have to adapt our way of dealing with evidence we may say in some cases actually we need this witness to be in the courtroom or the witness needs to be in the courtroom with the person asking the questions yeah I haven't had one where I've come to that crunch yet it is possible to cross-examine on a video link but um I suspect there may be some of those cases where it's much more difficult to do justice to the particular needs of the case yeah I mean, I, I, I'll mention this when we're getting towards the end of the lecture because I do want to tussle with the ethical dilemmas that are imposed upon us, but at the moment we're setting out the framework. And that's my cue to come back to you, Cyrus, because as you said in your brief introduction, in the early days, it was foot off the pedal. Then it was straight onto Zoom, and then there was a much more balanced, nuanced, case-by-case approach yeah. that was dictated by guidance from the President of the Family Division. But as of last week, there was a new document published by him, wasn't it, called The Way Ahead. Um, tell, us, tell us what that signalled in terms of a change of approach. Well, um, but basically, um, Sir Andrew was at great pains to emphasise that 
Um, the, um, the road ahead is not guidance. Um, he's not binding the judiciary um, to do a, a particular um, list of factors um, and to apply those to um, cases in a particular way. So um, there was no straitjacket. It was a series of tips and recommendations, which they could follow if they wanted to. But the, the general thrust of it is um, cases uh, need to go ahead. Um, the COVID um, social distancing is here to stay uh, for a significant period of time. We are not going to go back to fully functioning courts. That is all the court uh, rooms being available uh, uh, on a given day, um, five days a week, uh, it's not going to happen well into next year. So we, we need to ensure that our cases go ahead and where possible, we should use uh, remote hearings where justice can be done. Uh, and there are cases which are suitable for part attended uh, or as Louise called them, uh, hybrid hearings. And also there are cases which can only really be heard um, in person. And um, those are fewer than what we thought previously because of the ability to coordinate um, some people dialing in uh, on a video platform and asking questions, as Lucy was suggesting, cross-examining by video when their clients are there in court uh, with support from either their instructing solicitor or another colleague uh, in the case who they're familiar with. So they have, they have a support, human contact, but they're also being asked questions um, through a video link. And the system does work. I've seen it work. I've heard uh, lots of uh, reports about it working, uh, but there are cases which still backfire. Um, the technology isn't always reliable and the system doesn't always run smoothly. Uh, we are improving, Joe, every week. And the, um, the cloud video platform, or Kinley, is going to be the setup that will be rolled out nationally by the end of this month into July. And that is the um, court services video platform and that will, I hope, become a user-friendly way of connecting people from different locations to the big screen, the video screen in court. And for those who should really be in court, who can travel and who can be in the courtroom, um, and uh, it's possible for that to happen, the system coordinates smoothly and well. So that's what we're trying to aim for. And um, the, um, j just picking up on a point that uh, Lucy made, uh, and also Louise, uh, about um, people losing their children um, while they're on a remote platform. And Joe, it may be that it's necessary for these cases to take place on a remote platform, such as Zoom. But actually, gradually, we're now moving towards a situation where you can appear in court in front of the judge that's making the decision. Um, it just depends on which court, what's available, and how quickly that can be set up. 
And um, there was a, uh, a famous case in April where a mother said to a judge on an iPad, are you going to take my child away from me on an iPad? Is that what you're going to do? And this judge was so moved that she said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to deal with your case um, by asking you to come to court. And she found a court space in order to be able to hear the mother's case. And she looked the mother in the eyes during the evidence, heard her evidence, and dealt with the case. I'm afraid I can't tell you the outcome because I don't know the outcome. Yeah. But, but that, that story um, was uh, incredibly powerful. And um, when, when Lucy and Louise talk about the, uh, the report from the Court of Protection um, from Sarah, um, which uh, influenced so many people to put the brakes on, there was another account by a judge who set out his experiences of the remote platform in the early days. And that was another account which um, influenced the president, Sir Andrew, in reflecting carefully about the speed with which we were just doing these cases without a great deal of regard to the impact that it was having on everyone. And Joe, as you know, uh, the, the video platforms are very tiring. Um, yeah. They're tiring for us, so goodness, goodness knows how it affects parents and lay parties um, who don't do this for a living. Um, and there are lots of um, very uh, sensitive measures that judges are now beginning to adopt to try and uh, make people feel comfortable and able to focus. And by comfortable, I don't mean uh, relaxed to the point that they're having cans of Diet Coke and getting up and popping out and coming back when they want to and going to the kitchen. Um, what I mean is just being able to actually participate without feeling great stress um, and being able to follow with decent breaks and opportunities to be able to talk to clients. And uh, my biggest regret that I've written about is um, the impact that it's had on client care. Uh, for the three advocates who are on this panel, client care is absolutely key. And I know that. Um, I haven't appeared with Lucy, uh, but I have with, with you, Joe. And I know that client care is everything. And uh, for 30 years, I've been able to meet my client in person before I deal with their case. First and foremost, for 30 years, I've been able to turn around to my client. Sometimes my client taps me on the shoulder and there is an immediate human contact. For 30 years, you go into a room to give them the good news or the bad news. And you're there to pick them up when they fall. And so for me, the current system is obviously the best that we can offer at the moment uh, for all sorts of reasons. Uh, but it's not the optimum. It's not really the gold standard. And, and I truly hope um, when we come on to the future that we go back to a situation where um, members of the public, our lay clients, parents, children, 
and professionals um, who we represent are able to have that direct contact with us. Better than being on, on WhatsApp um, yeah. during the trial or um, some other way. I agree. And that's the important message, isn't it? Look, I think it needs to be made really clear through this conversation that none of us would say that this was acceptable. This is extreme measures being taken in order to try to deliver the best justice we can to the children and the parents in a situation where we can't deliver the type of environment that we want to. And just before we move on, I just want to pick up on some of the things that we said about the Zoom. Now, Zoom, quite, um, Zoom um, has to be accessed through the internet. And it was Louise that said, it depends on so many factors. Does your client have, does she have the broadband width? Does she have enough data on her phone? Does she have a screen that she can use? But the, the parts that have really concerned me, Louise, acting for the type of clients I do, is that as soon as we are on Zoom and we are looking at one another through this posted window, it's not just a window out for the mother or the father to look at the judge or the advocates. It's a window into their lives. And you and I have spoken about this, and I've explained my worry that for a client, for example, who claims that she has been systematically raped over a long period of time by one other party in the court, for her to be on a screen where that person is able to look into her room, which happens to be a bedroom because many of our clients don't have the ability to have more than one space, and have a space, for example, where there's no person listening in, is a huge worry. Equally, it's a worry that when they're having, when they're joining here by Zoom, we don't know how confidential it is. We don't know what can be overheard, and we don't know whether they're being coached or whether they're being uh, listened to, and there might be repercussions. But more importantly as well, it means that we aren't there to explain what the system is and they are exposing their life in a very fundamental way. Um, I think it was you that saw into the home of one of the parties joining and it contrasted the poverty of her life with the affluence of those that were talking about her life, which seemed really brutal. Would that be a, a fair way of summarising your experience of that two-way window that we're operating through? So I think that particular one was um, Celia Kitzinger's um, right. I mean, I, I certainly, it is very intimate to see into where somebody lives when you're discussing their family life. It feels yeah. inappropriately intimate. Um, yes, yeah, so the young woman in the bedroom, there was a couple who were about to become special guardians for two, I think, children who were in foster care. They were sat in their living room. You know, here I am sat in my study. Actually, when I when I attend hearings, I take down the pictures on my wall because it, it doesn't feel right that my kids' pictures should be on the wall when I'm attending a hearing about children, children potentially being removed from their parents. Um, and I think that has to be taken account of. There was something I wanted to mention about what um, Cyrus was saying, which is that... Um, I, I don't. I, it's possible. I, I don't know if you've ever been um, a party in a family court, um, but but I have not as someone who is at risk of losing my children, but as an applicant. And I've been represented by Lucy um, in one particular case, and by Paul Bowen QC in another. Now, I was in no way <laughs> as vulnerable as anybody that you represent, but I was asking for something um, in both cases: the right to report. Um, and I felt anxious and shaky, particularly the time when I was being represented by Lucy. This was all entirely unfamiliar territory to me. Um, and you look at your barrister 
as your protector. That's what it feels like. They are the person who is going to fight for you. And the reassurance of having that person, as opposed to the times when I have represented myself, um, is, is immeasurably different. Um, and the consequences for me are, are nothing if I lose, essentially. Um, but I just wanted to put across that set the yeah. huge difference in having that person with you, in front of you, that you can talk to. Literally, I remember handing notes to Lucy and to Paul Bowen, and they turn around and you can you have this communication, and then they put your points because you're not actually in a state where you could start to do it efficiently. Um, it's very important, that dynamic. Can I just um, move on to some of the conflicts though? Because what we've talked about is the necessity in particular hearings when the content of the work might be so sensitive or the decision is so serious. For example, a fact-finding hearing of the of the desirability of the person who has to give evidence being there in court with the judge being visible and it being a two-way communication with the lawyer being there. But the question I really have struggled with is what, what risk does that place the barrister under? So, for example, if you are dealing with a client who you have um, no guarantee will have washed, let alone that in the last 20 minutes, in the last day or the last week, the concept of them having the willingness to acquire, let alone wear a face mask, is non-existent. And the idea of a two-metre social distance with someone who has got the capacity to lose their temper, who will be affected by a decision and therefore will want to reach out. What responsibility is there for us to place the necessity of acting for that person over and above what could then be a real risk of exposing themselves to the virus of the barrister concerned or the solicitor concerned or the lawyer concerned? How do we balance that ethical duty to represent the client in the best way possible, face-to-face in the court environment, with our own uh, desire to recognise that we've got a private life as well and we do not want to expose ourselves unnecessarily to the risk of carrying an infection back because there is always another lawyer but there's not always another mother, another father, another brother, another sister, an aunt. So how about that balance? Have, have, have either of you confronted that yet? Yeah, I keep asking the question. Nobody can give me an answer. It's, you know, it's not come to the crunch for me yet, but it's a real worry that my view is once you've accepted instructions, that's your obligation to your client. And if the court determines it's going to be an attended hearing and that's what you need to do, that's what you need to do. But it may not be consistent with my responsibilities to my family, mm. who I, as you say, don't want to bring germs home to anybody who might be vulnerable. Um, and it is really worrying. I know that the court service have been doing a lot of work around risk assessing and making buildings safe. But there are those who would say that the simple fact of being in a closed environment for a number of hours or a number of days with the same people and the air recirculating, even if you're two metres distance, is going to expose you to risk or travelling to court on public transport is going to expose you to risk. Um, And I think that it's unfortunate, really, that there hasn't been clearer guidance from the regulatory bodies about how to deal with those issues. I mean, I think the professional position is quite clear, really, on the existing code of conduct. Um, 
I don't know, I suppose I would wish somebody would give me a magic solution and there probably isn't one, but there are some real tensions there that I expect yeah. in individual cases will be really difficult for individual lawyers to resolve. Certainly the guidance from, from the president of the family division is suggesting that, you know, if push comes to shove and an advocate can't come to court, whatever can't means, um, then another lawyer will have to be found. But that doesn't actually answer the question um, for a barrister who is instructed and whose client wants them to come to court and they feel like it's too risky for them. It's really difficult. Well, Cyrus and I were discussing this in preparation for this talk and I, I don't know if he's made any progress, but um, I've had the fortune today to speak to Sam Mercer, who's the Equality Officer at the Bar Council, Amanda Pinto, who's the, 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 our chair, uh, and indeed someone on the Ethics Committee to, to try to delve um and probe to see what guidance should be offered and it's a lot more nuanced than you'd appreciate through the uh, bar council website because if you go onto it under ethics and then you click under uh coravenous virus uh, updates and then you click on frequently answered questions you're only going to find two paragraphs that deal with your professional obligation to attend courts which are quite simplistic and they are and i've said this frankly to the people i've spoken to very off-putting because essentially the guidance as currently drafted says if the court has been deemed open, it has therefore been deemed safe and therefore you are under a responsibility to go unless you fall within the categories of vulnerable person or you're shielding someone who's vulnerable. Um, and then when you look under the second category about do clinically vulnerable people, I not necessarily lawyers, have to attend hearings in person. There's some flexibility there, but it's still fixed to the to the definition of clinically vulnerable and clinically extremely vulnerable. And that appears to, to basically drive you into a position where you are possibly being required to make a decision in your professional life to protect someone else that exposes your own family to a risk, because we may well have reasons that we don't want to go to court, that we don't want to explain. We may be pregnant and not wanting to say so because the fact of being pregnant might affect the work that comes in for us. It might be that there's another personal reason that there's a condition you don't want anyone to know. Um, it might be that you don't fall into any of those categories, but in fact you're putting yourself into a very secure, safe environment at home as a matter of election because you've got someone who you don't want to be exposed to. So I put those questions to the Bar Council today and I'm relieved to say that the advice given is much more nuanced than you'd otherwise read on the website. And if there's any message to come out of this hearing to the profession, it is ring up um, to speak to the Equalities um, Commission, Sam Mercer in particular, or to the ethics team. Because what they will say is your obligation when you receive a brief that requires you potentially to put yourself in an unsafe situation or one you deem to be unsafe is to look at your situation what is you are attempting to shield yourself or someone else from? What is it that poses a risk to you? Is it the public transport? Therefore, can you drive? Is it the court environment? What's the risk assessment? Is it nature of your clients? Because there has to be a social contract between us as lawyers and our clients in terms of how we are going to behave in our very different way of working now. Is the case itself suitable um, for attendance of court? Can it be dealt with another way? And as long as you go through a risk analysis, which you can evidence you've done, then it will be a rare exceptional case where anyone says that you're not following through on your duty. And that is a much more case by case, client by client, person by person 
nuanced reaction to the unusual situation we're in that should be adopted because the situation we've spoken about amongst us is with we've got two silks we've got a senior junior here and I was deeply concerned that in the early days and as we are still going on those barristers who are least able to make informed decisions because their briefs come in at the last moment quite often not only with insufficient information but wrong information and they come in the day before before they've had a chance to look up the regulations or to see or the risk assessment and decide and they tend to be pupils or junior barristers not people like me who are long enough in the tooth to say to the judge I am not comfortable doing this for my sake or the client's sake but juniors who don't have the confidence to disappoint a solicitor to disappoint a clerk's and then to put someone else in that situation. And so I think the message that needs to be given out to that group of people is that you are entitled to make a decision based on your situation and you must always feel comfortable in reaching out to someone in chambers, looking at their guidance and ringing up the bar council and have a very nuanced response to the situation you're in. Because in this environment where we are working, the client care which needs to be given has to be balanced against the home care that we need to give in order to carry on doing our job. So that's the tension, I think, that we haven't really grappled with and now don't have the time to really plumb down into how far our duty to a client, how far our desire to be a child protection lawyer is now having to be adjusted because we can't act for the client in the way we want we possibly shouldn't be acting for the client in the way we want. And the alternative to that is a remote hearing, which may not be acceptable for the client. So I think that's a, there, there are lots of questions that therefore arise from that balancing exercise. But the important thing is to engage in the arguments, not to pretend that there is a solution. There are a number of solutions that are emerging, but they not, may not be the best one. When I spoke to Amanda, she came up with a great phrase, which is, I'm always wary of those people that come up with solutions because they often seem too easy. And the easy solutions aren't often the right ones, particularly when you're looking at it a week or a month later. And so one has to be really, um, really, I think, willing to challenge the way we are working because it may not be the best way and to challenge assumptions made about our capacity to participate with the same degree of vehemence as we do challenge our clients' ability to participate. And I don't want to lose that sense of the profession having duties as individuals as much as our professions have duties to those that we represent because we are a, a select, committed, vocational call of practitioners who want to do the right thing. And if we are going to do the right thing, it means we've got to be, have a very honest discussion about how far we can accommodate a loss of the Rolls-Royce system that I think we tried to give to our clients before and how much of that system can only operate if we are prepared to forego um, a degree of, I don't know, reserves of energy, um, uh, reserves of health and a degree of tension um, when we may have to do things or feel we have to do things that may not be commensurate with um, having a healthy professional career. The business about um, whether or not one is in breach of the um, Bar Standards Board um, uh, Code. So um, the the government, uh, the, the, the Bar Standards Board issued this. 
Barristers who follow government or public health England guidance on COVID-19 will not be in breach of their professional obligations. That's what the Bar Standards Board said on the 18th of March. Uh, taking my example, um, I've got a hearing sometime in the summer for a number of weeks in London. I live in London. But in order for me to get from my house to the courthouse, which is hearing this case, I have to take the tube. And I am still very anxious about safety on the tube, especially social distancing. I've seen the photographs. I've heard from friends who've been on the tube. And I'm not prepared to risk going from my house to the court. Secondly, the court that's going to hear the case is a court that hasn't quite yet opened. So I don't yet know whether the safety measures are going to be um, sufficient or compliant. I suspect they will be. But um, when you add all these, these anxieties, uh, I feel I'm entitled to say um, that I won't attend in person. So, um, you know, I, I had to give my client the opportunity of instructing someone else if they wanted to, knowing that I would not be able to attend in person. But what we've arranged is for my client to have the support of what we call uh, my junior, so another colleague that works with the case. And um, I'm for a professional client, so it's not, although it's significant, it's not as significant as representing a lay party. And of course I had to run it past the judge who's hearing the case. But once I had all the boxes ticked, I felt I could proceed. But, but I felt comfortable in returning the case ethically. Um, but obviously there's also another matter, which is financial. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people are suffering um, as a result of cases um, being suspended, adjourned, uh, and not going ahead. And it's a time of, of uh, great... Um, financial difficulty for many, many people. And I think some of the junior members of the bar are under enormous pressure to accept briefs, um, but worrying about the risks. And um, I think there is some pressure uh, from some judges uh, to um, direct that advocates and the parties attend court. And so it's a worry of ours. Uh, I know you're aware of it, Joe. Uh, it's, it's a huge worry of ours. I wonder whether there is um, some breach of equality, diversity and disability um, regulations. So um, we're, we're looking into it. But as, as the president said, I think there's real pressure on dealing with some cases. And uh, the choice of advocate may not be a necessity, but a luxury. Can uh, I just, Louise, may I come back, come, come over to you, because Louis, uh, Lucy's nodding. You know, we are aware of the tension between the desire to do the best by the client with the desire still to be a functioning person within our private life. When we've just introduced that side, does it strike you as selfish that you hear us very honestly saying that we are balancing up whether we are prepared to do it. Does that strike you as a selfish decision, particularly in an environment where, you know, we have our Thursday clap, the NHS staff, we have carers who put themselves in situations risk. 
And here you are, here in Barrister, saying, well, I'm not sure I'm prepared to do that for my client. How does that strike you? So these conversations are being had clearly right now amongst amongst the whole teaching profession as well. Hmm. Um, And you could argue that the interests of children across the country um, are on one side of the balance and the interests of the the staff who they need to make schools work um, are potentially in the other. Now, I've spent the last week um, researching a piece about not not the children that that you represent, but about the children who are on the edge of the care system or who indeed, um, you know, have never been known to any safeguarding professional, but who, and and, and the stories that I'm hearing about the trauma that children across the country, and this is, you know, there are nearly 9 million school children in England alone. The trauma that they're suffering is, is it by being out of school and not having that professional oversight is going to last many, probably tens, hundreds of thousands of them throughout the rest of their lives um, and the disadvantage. And so the conversation, I guess, that that is being had in in the school situation, which affects that many more people, is school is a a central part of of not just education, but safety for children. And so where is the balance being drawn there? Because, of course, neither teachers nor family law barristers nor um, medical professionals nor nor, nor porters in hospitals, nor healthcare assistants, nor bus drivers went into those jobs thinking that they might have to put their lives at risk. Um, so it doesn't sound indulgent to me. Um, it sounds like a an incredibly difficult problem of public policy, amongst many things, that this virus has inflicted on our whole society and is going to have to be grappled with and potentially, I mean, you'll be used to this, um, new balances will have to be struck. Um, It may be that some teachers or some people who might have considered being teachers will not want to go into that profession because of the exposure that they'll face. That doesn't really solve the problem of where things are at now. But if the virus continues or until there is a vaccine that is effective and you know, that may be a year, two years. It may be 10 years. There's no vaccine for HIV yet. Um, as a society, we are going to have to grapple in a very sensitive way with everything that is thrown up about how we draw the balance of safety and risk. So, Lucy, is there anything you would like to bring to this debate that you've not either heard or said yourself so far? I suppose... Um I was thinking, actually, just before you asked the question about whether we were being self-indulgent, what does this sound like? I think that there has been a renewed focus, actually, from all of us and the judges on making sure that we look after ourselves through this period, not only for our own sake, but also because that means we can do the job better. So the two issues are interlinked, in fact, if we are all unwell because we've caught the virus or if we are um, unable to work because we're too stressed out or we are working um, in a suboptimal way because we're overtired, that is not helpful to our clients. We need to be able to function at the top of our game in order to do that job really well for our clients. And so judges are day in, day out saying, we are, for the sake of the the parties, 
but also for the sake of the lawyers. The judge in my hearing today said it. It's not just about the parties, it's about the lawyers. We are going to stop for a break after an hour. We're not doing more than an hour. We'll have a break. We're going to make sure we manage our days because it's tiring for everybody. You can see people glazing over after about an hour and 15 minutes if you don't stop. So there are ways in which I think we're beginning to recognise that the well-being of the advocate is interlinked with how well we can do our job for the client. So it, it's not a um, a straight dichotomy. They are they are interlinked issues, and and I think we're recognising we're going to have to try and balance both those things um, to Thank do you. the best we can in less than ideal circumstances. Thank you, Cyrus. Anything you'd like to add? Joe, just a couple of things. Um, I think this entire COVID uh, pandemic uh, and the impact that it's had on family justice has taught me many, many things. Uh, It's made me appreciate uh, the work that you, Louise and Lucy have done and many others that um, when it really matters, um, people stepped up and uh, they have shown, uh, you have shown uh, tremendous leadership and vision, and also it showed me how resilient and how um, incredibly resourceful uh, we are as uh, as a society and as a legal community, that we wanted to make sure that our system continued to run so that children were protected and uh, that justice was done. And it's by no means um, the perfect solution and it will improve, uh, but actually we ensured that uh, the system continued. Uh, And uh, the second uh, point really is about the future. Um, When the crisis began, the first thing the president said is that yes, we need to deal with the crisis, but we also need to look at the recovery at the same time. And so uh, I'd like uh, all those uh, watching this to know that the president plans the recovery from the very beginning and appointed a recovery group led by Lord Justice Baker and Mrs Justice Francis Judd, who are looking at the backlog of cases and ensuring that those are dealt with properly and justly and in a relatively timely manner uh, so that uh, delay does not destroy families and and, uh, harm uh, children. And so that, um, in fact, the the court process continues to function uh, in the the best way that it possibly can. So watch this space in terms of um, the plans for what we call the recovery. Uh, But uh, I'm generally very impressed with um, human nature and how we've dealt with uh, what is the the worst crisis that um, I have ever known, uh, perhaps all of us have ever known. Wise words. Louise, anything you'd like to say to bring this part of the conversation to a close? Well, I was very well aware that as this whole crisis started, the family justice system was already greatly overstretched. So it is completely alarming from the outside to realise the level of backlog that you are all going to be having to deal with um, and recovery plan or not. given the restrictions that everyone is operating under, it cannot fail but to affect families who are facing some of the worst situations of their life. Um, And I guess in conclusion, what I would say is that that 
to me, makes it even more important that people like Celia and me and other journalists have as much access as possible to be able to talk about the process of what is going on in family court cases and the kinds of decisions that are being made and the kinds of pressures they're being made under. Because it's only in that way that we will start to understand as a society, as opposed to you as a profession, the effect in this part of our justice system of, of the virus. Thank you. Well, it draws to me to draw more proceedings to a close. And if I want to draw any theme up from the contributions so far and the people we've spoken to in preparation for this lecture, it is to shine a light on those people who have really done more than step up the mark. They have given their own time, their anxiety levels, their ingenuity and their skill to try to keep the family justice system running, even if not in the way we want to do. And that's through the FLBA, it's through the court staff, it's through the various members of the BSB, the Bar Council, um, Cyrus, who's led the way by making difficult decisions in strained times. And to all of those people who have tried to make sure that the clients are not left behind, if there's any message of comfort to come from this encounter, it is that we are legal aid lawyers because we care and we want to make a difference. And we want to make a difference by taking the vulnerable clients along with us. And that is something that is configuring our thinking at every single hearing, every single conference, whether it's visible or not. So it is a question of watch this space. Um, the one skill that Cyrus has is not advertised is he's a member of the magic circle. And if he, if he could wave his magic wand and resolve our crisis for us now, then we'd all be much happier. But he can't. But we, there is a plan to follow, and maybe that's a subject for a conversation to have in the not-too-distant future. But for the time being, can I please say thank you very much for joining uh, me in this discussion. Thank you very much to the Gresham audience for tuning in and listening in. And what I will do is make sure that the telephone numbers to contact so far as individual barristers that want advice on their individual um, commitments to clients or cases uh, know where to go. The first message is talk to someone you trust in chambers or outside, look at your chambers policies. If you can't find someone that is able to talk to you, then pick up the phone and speak to any one of us because we are in this together and we understand that the pressures for each of you are entirely unique. But in the same way we talked about judicial bullying or sexual harassment, the first issue to grapple with is you say if something feels wrong because if you say it, then we can try to help you. So thank you very much indeed for everyone um, for listening. Thank you very much to my guests. And I shall sign off from my Zoom virtual background of Barnard's Hall and wish for a time when I can be there in person. So thank you very much, everyone. <laughs>